Hello and welcome to the Garden Church Podcast. My name's Darren and I'm here with Faith. Hi. Pastor Faith. And we will get to the sermon in just a little bit, but we wanted to make some time and space to talk about something special that we've been having on Sundays. And it's a new song that Pastor Faith, you and your husband, Josh, wrote, and we've shared it with our community. Tell us a little bit about it. What's the name of it? Yeah. And where did it come from? Yeah, so it's called We Need You. Um, and I, I'm going to root this in 1 Corinthians 2 when Paul says, My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. Um, the, the first thing that was written for this song was the beginning of that bridge section that says, We don't need better plans. We don't need clever thoughts. We need your Spirit, O oh God. We don't want the wisdom of man. We want we want a display of God's power, which is really what the world needs. They don't need to see a show, or even in the area of worship, they don't need to hear good music. We need to see a display of the power of God. So it came from that heart cry. And then the beginning of the song kind of sets up this space where we invite Holy Spirit, we open our hearts, we clear out all the distractions, the things that get in the way and then just simply cry out for more of Him. And it's this this longing to be a, a space where the Spirit would rest mm-hmm. as a community. Yeah, I love that. That's such a the heart and core value of Garden Church. Exactly. Knowing that the Spirit is present, like He's welcome to the party and we get to celebrate. And I so appreciate the beauty and creativity that you've been cultivating, not only with worship, but just something that we can invite the rest of our community into. And, and it's so cool when, when uh, in the recording of this song, it's the first time that we shared it. And it's like people have been singing it for weeks. <laughs> and it was just such a cool thing to experience. And so we're so happy for those of you that have experienced that with us on a Sunday morning. And we want to see just more original songs being birthed from this place um, that you're talking about, just being saturated in the Holy Spirit. So we are welcoming you to stick around after the sermon where you can hear a live recording of the song, We Need You, and I hope it blesses your heart. Garden Church Podcast. It says in Matthew 6, verse 9, let's pray it together. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Stay there for one moment. I want to pray together for something, all of us. I want you to know that this Franklin School is not going to be our home forever. It's been an amazing season here. But we do believe, our leadership believe, that the time for a new location has come. And we have been pursuing a new facility. I have pursued a new facility for 13 years. (laughs) I, I, I can, I'll send you, I'll show you the list eventually. I have tried lots of times. Our team has tried lots of times. And we are right now in the process of trying to get something. Um, and it's contested as it should be. Because the enemy doesn't want us to have a 24-7 access church facility. So can we all, in our best prayers, intercede for the next chapter of the garden? Out loud, your best prayer. Father, we come unified asking that you would cover this story of Garden Church as we pursue new territory and land. I pray, Jesus, you bring um, a breakthrough in lease agreements, LOIs, finances, resources, furnishings for a new location that will give us the next run of our season. I pray for the next 14 years as a church to be blessed with your provision. I pray against any strongholds working against our church to occupy new territory. We pray we have new land, new area, that salvation would reign, healing would reign, reconciliation would reign, your kingdom would come on earth as it is in heaven. We pray for breakthrough this season in Jesus' name. We pray as one church unified in this. Amen. Amen. All right, grab a seat. Thank you, church. We'll talk about that in the future. I just wanted to plant a seed in your heart and head to know that more is coming. I read this during my study this week. I'm going to start with this, and then I'm going to give you a review. I want to frighten you with something. You ready? 
the early church believed that everyone who came to Christ out of the world was carrying demons. Therefore, they required new converts to go through a preparation time, sometimes up to two or more years, during which they received instruction and underwent deliverance from demons. Only after the church leaders were sure that the potential members member was free of demons would that they be baptized would they baptize him or her according to Charles Kraft when he references the New Testament scholar Clinton Arnold in his book 2 hours of freedom so we're talking about deliverance we're talking about demons we're talking about spiritual warfare we're talking about the ministry of Jesus today i want to talk about Jesus's ministry and the ministry of deliverance in particular. I'm going to go large topical study through all of the Gospels and give you a framework. So last week, I want to give you a recap. And to me, I see these two weeks as creating like a, a heavy theological foundation for you. Next week, Alex and Hannah Absalom are teaching on uh, the deliverance ministry and uh, the ministry of deliverance in the book of Acts. The following week, Pastor Bill will talk about Ephesians and the epistles, and then I'm going to come back. I'm preaching at Julian and Katia's church next Sunday, and I'm preaching in New York the following Sunday on the ministry of healing in, in Manhattan, at Church of the City, John Tyson's church, a friend of ours. Um, so that's why I'm gone. Um, but I, I want to start with some theology. I feel like so much of what we talked about last week was, um, for many of us, challenging, So let me give you those challenging points in a recap, all right? You ready for the the Netflix? Don't skip the intro. Here we go. So since the beginning of uh, the 18th century, Enlightenment, rationalistic thinking, and scientific worldview assumed there's no reality beyond the natural material universe, what could be measured and observed in a laboratory. If it doesn't exist there, it doesn't exist anywhere. This is called the materialistic worldview. And it so affected the Western church that we began to, th- to see things from this materialistic, rationalistic, scientific worldview. And it's be- it produced skepticism for all things supernatural in the church from the 18th century to present day. I argue that today the church is more skeptical of things that are supernatural than the Western world. Because we're making a shift. So although that's true, we are at this moment in history where now people are more open to spirits, uh, eternal life, uh, gods, and, and supernatural activity than ever before. We're obsessed with it. All of the artifacts of our culture that are being produced, the highest grossing films, are films that have witch doctors and witches and, and superpowers and, and um, like, like multiverse madness or moon night king or stranger things. These are all these ideas that there are things happening behind the scenes. Now, most of the world has already assumed this for thousands of years. It was just the last few hundred years in Western context, we denied it. But now we're getting back to that place, which I believe is good news. And I'll tell you about that in a second. But our worldview has shaped us. And I love this quote from The Usual Suspects, a movie which I don't know if I can recommend from the pulpit. But (laughs) it says, the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he doesn't exist. And our worldview shapes the way we live and interact in the world. So it affects how we pray and how we engage into the community around us. If we adopt a biblical worldview, then it means we need to have a supernatural or a spiritual warfare worldview. There are things behind the things we see. You guys okay with that? The Old Testament summary assumes the presence of invisible spiritual beings, like human beings, that have a clear mind and will of their own. They can choose to work with God or against God. Daniel chapter 10 reveals a certain evil cosmic invisible being that possessed the power to disrupt a plan of God to answer Daniel's prayer. I talked about this last week. So this tears away from poor theology that says God's in control, which I argue is a cop-out for the mystery and the mystical powers that are working beyond our ability to see. I believe that scripture teaches God is sovereign, all-powerful, supreme, and eventually all things will be his will on earth. In the age to come, Second, this is Revelation chapter 21, 22. But I don't believe that God is manipulating all the things and determining all the things that are happening in the world. If that were the case, then he's Freddy Krueger because he willed Holocaust. 
He wills human trafficking. I don't see that in the character of God in the Old and New Testaments. Are you guys okay with that? This gives us uh, the answer to what so many non-Christians have when they ask the question, how can a loving God allow for evil things to happen in the world? Why do bad things happen to good people? It's because of free will. And because a loving father, a loving being, empowers the ability to choose. I would not be a loving father if I determined all of the decisions of my children. Are you with me, church? So this is where we're at in in the recap. So we believe that God is sovereign. He is all powerful and, um, and he has uh, authority and he's in charge, but he's allowing for creation. And he's on this loving mission to redeem things once and for all. He does this through Israel and then eventually through, the church, uh, through Jesus. And now he's doing it through the church and the power of the Holy Spirit. And eventually once and for all, all of creation will be renewed when Jesus comes back. This is what we cry, come Jesus, come. And if the world's getting darker, can I say this? The church isn't doing its job. Let's not hide away in Montana and create a little monastery. No, no, no. Let's engage in the world, bringing our flashlights, showing the darkness what's real. Our battle is not with flesh and blood, but against spiritual realities opposing God's way of life, both in and around us. And then therefore, what I shared last week is spiritual warfare almost always feels flesh and blood. It's not, our battle is not against flesh and blood, but it almost always feels like flesh and blood. It feels physical, emotional, mental, relational. And this is why I believe um, the world looking towards the supernatural is good news. Can I tell you why I think that is? Because I think we've not been able to name things as evil in the last, I don't know, 100 years. World War II, we, we did a little bit, but modernism produced the postmodern world, which is essentially saying everything's good. You can do whatever you want. Human progress is building a utopia. And uh, utopia is this vision of the world without God's presence. It's God's kingdom without him as king. And that's Babel. But now... People are open to the supernatural. And what they're going to see is as they open themselves up to spiritual beings, there's no neutral spiritual being. It's either demonic or following God's way. So it's either evil kingdom of darkness or the kingdom of God and light and good. Are you with me? What this means is the church has an opportunity to show what real power looks like in the world. The church has an opportunity to set people free. We've tried... And we're in this moment in what I think is a great collision course, which we'll talk about in the future. And that collision course is we live in a therapeutic culture, which has given rise to the self as the highest authority in the land for lots of reasons. I don't have time to get into it right now. But in this therapy culture, what we're seeing is change is still not happening. I believe in therapy. Everyone should see a therapist. But I also believe that we need deliverance. We need deliverance. Amen. We need therapists. We need, great, we need good therapists. Call it out. It's like, I'm, not, I'm just going to pause right there. I'm not going to give you my, but we also need deliverance. All right. Let's, let's go to the scriptures and talk about the ministry of Jesus. Are you guys okay with that review? You glad you didn't speed through that and skip the intro? Producer, director name, all of those things. So ministry of Jesus. So we're going to start with the bigger picture. If you go to the Bible, I'm going to give you a bunch of verses today. I'd love for you to highlight this. I want to show you a lens to see the ministry of Jesus through, okay? I want to give you a theology of uh, an overview of the ministry of Jesus. In our Western context, we skip over a lot of this. So the gospel writer, John, wrote some epistles. And in 1 John chapter 3, verse 8, at the, par- the second part of it, he says this. He says, the one who does what is sinful is of the devil, just pause. Could you imagine that kind of preaching today? The one who does what is sinful is of the devil. And fire of hell will burn you. Ah! No, um, this is what John, John, the, the beloved disciple says this. But he, he's summarizing his perspective later in life because this is an epistle later in life. Because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. And then it goes on to say, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. Summary of Jesus' work according to the beloved disciple, the Apostle John. Jesus came to destroy the devil's work. John chapter 10, verse 10. 
Jesus himself identifies his mission in one line. And it says this, the thief naming evil power comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have a life and have it to the full. I feel prompted on this text real quick, side note. If you have friends or kids or people in your life that are opening themselves up to the spiritual realm, and there's a million ways we do this, whatever that spirit is, whatever that opening yourself up to is a spirit that may feel good in the moment, but it's designed to kill and destroy you. There's no neutrality. I really can't overemphasize this enough. That I, 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 I was hearing stories of teachers who said they're seeing more witchcraft in their junior high. People in youth are, the youth are opening themselves up to spiritual things, witchcraft and all sorts of stuff because they, they want that power. They probably want to control life that seems out of control. They're opening themselves up to things that will destroy and kill them. And we don't talk about this. It's evil. But Jesus, on the other hand, according to Jesus himself, has come to give us life and have it to the fullest. He comes to bring abundant, overflowing, rich, nourishment life that can only be experienced through direct relationship with God, an ongoing, loving relationship with God. Jesus comes to restore what was lost in the Garden of Eden. That's what he's saying in this passage. It's there's an enemy working against God's cosmic plan of union with humanity. And Jesus comes to reestablish, restore those things. And the thing is this, I just want to say this, why I'm so passionate about deliverance right now is I see the lack of transformation in the church. You're like, I love this passage, Jaren, but I do not have life to its full. Anyone I want to just say, that's part of their story. That's part of my story. Things in our lives have power over us and we're not yet fully the person we long to be. And I want to suggest, yes, some of it is your flesh, the sin habits that you have. Some of it's just laziness and distraction. Some of it is the environment you're in and the way it's being influenced, the narratives you've believed, the lies, the, the agreements you have that the enemy now uses to keep you stuck. I believe that. But also evil power at work, keeping you from the fullness of what Jesus wants you to be. Because I believe the enemy knows, like in Romans chapter eight, when the sons of God are revealed, the children of God is what he's referring to, the Christians, creation's groaning for us to realize who we are. Romans eight, just read that passage. And this is why the enemy's working against you to keep you small, to keep you angry, to keep you bitter, to keep you in sin, because he knows when you touch that life and you begin to move forward, he's got to run. How are we doing, church? Are we awake? But this, the bigger story in this is that the devil, Satan, comes to steal, kill, and destroy. And the ministry of Jesus is re reversing the effects of Satan and evil in the world. All right, so Rome, uh, let's go to Genesis 1. I want to show you the bigger picture. Genesis chapter 1, it's a familiar text. We come here a lot. Verse 26, I'm just going to frame the ministry of Jesus for the rest of the synoptic gospels. It says this, Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock, all the wild animals, and all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created humankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. So God creates humanity in his image and he chooses to partner with humanity to steward creation, to, to, to care for creation on behalf of him. This is our right as humans is to steward creation, to create environments on earth where creation flourishes. That's what it means to be human. That's our divine commission, is to have dominion 
over creation. Now, I know that word gets confused because I'm not teaching dominionism. I'm talking about the early idea of rule and subdue, this cultivation, this partnership with God and the stewardship. So if you come to my house, I have rule over my, well, if you come to my house, my wife has rule over our home. No, we, we do it together. But, but, but like, so, I, okay, I'm going to, so my wife has the ability to say, I'm going to put this couch over here now. Now, what she does is she lets me do the thing, but she, it's her will that's being exercised in the authority and the rule. And it makes sense because she is the woman of the house. We have all boys in our house. She's, the, she's our, our queen, our woman of the house. She rules. We serve at her back. This is what we're called as husbands. No, I'm not joking now. I'm theologically correcting you men. As the head of the house is the servant of the house. Right? Be like Jesus to the church. What did Jesus do? Demand he gets his meatloaf. No. Lay down his life, which I fail regularly at. But my point is dominion. If you came to my house and started rearranging the furniture, started eating from my fridge, there would be a problem, would it not? All right, this is the idea of dominion. So we have, as humans, the right, the privilege, the identity and commission from God to do that in loving relationship with God. But then Genesis 3 comes, and a serpent comes and deceives Adam and Eve together. They're both there. Let me correct some theology. They're both present, and it's Adam's passivity that leads to this moment. And then sin enters into this story because they disobey the one command from God. They say, we're going to do it our way. They disobey. Sin comes into the story. And with sin comes a curse over the land. Nature is distorted. Evil comes. And now we give our right and ability to rule to Satan. So what comes into the story at Genesis 3 is sin, sickness, Satan. The nature is distorted. Creation is distorted. And death all come into the scene. And so when Jesus, let me just fast forward. So the rest of the story of the Bible is God redeeming what he originally envisioned. What does his will look like? Genesis 1 and 2. So when God brings Revelation 21 and 22, it looks a lot like Genesis 1 and 2. That's his desire. His temple is not in a building. His temple is creation. His presence with us everywhere, with all humanity, working in shalom, no disease, no sickness, no sin, no tears, no pain. That's his desire, shalom, but it's been distorted. And so Jesus is on a mission to take back what, was, what we gave away through disobedience. This is why writers in the New Testament will call Jesus the new Adam because he takes back the authority to rule the earth and creation once and for all from the Satan. Are you guys okay? I told you there's going to be theology. You got to roll up your sleeves, put on your thinking caps. We need this. Let me tell you why you need this. Because you're going to go out of here. And you're going to watch ESPN. You're going to watch Netflix. You're going to stream. You're going to watch your news app. You're going to be scrolling through life. You're going to think, how are you going to resist the schemes of the devil when you're immersed in culture and you can't stand or think for 45 minutes? Woo! That wasn't in the notes. That was freebie for you. Mark 1, Jesus says this, the time has come, the kingdom of God has come near, repent and believe the good news. So when Jesus preaches God's kingdom, he's saying God's in charge. And then he goes around acting like he's in charge. He starts changing the furniture, moving the curtains. He goes into the fridge. He says in Mark chapter three, I'm gonna skip there real quick. He, uh, he says in chapter three, verse 23, let me just go there. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. And one commentator says this is the entire summary of the gospel of Mark. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house without first tying him up. Then he can plunder the strong man's house. What? Mark, in the, in the book, a commentary on the gospel of Mark, the binding of the strong man, 
Mark is saying Jesus is the stronger man. He's the one that comes and binds up Satan to plunder his house. Come on, church. Okay, so he says the kingdom of God is at hand. This is a confrontation to the powers of evil. So then what does he do? He acts like he's in charge. Jesus forgives sins. He heals sicknesses. He casts out demons. He tames out of control storms and walks on water. Pastor Bill said in our class, he believes, and you should ask him about this next time he's here, that Adam would have had the capacity and power in partnership with God to say to the storm clouds, clouds, this garden over here in Eden needs a little rain today. And it would have been reality. Rule and dominion over the creation. And then once and for all, Jesus defeats the greatest enemy to God's beautiful and good creation, death. And N.T. Wright says it this way, death is the last weapon of the tyrant. And the point of the resurrection, despite much misunderstanding, is that death has been defeated, amen? Resurrection is not the redescription of death. It is the overthrow and will that, uh, and with that, the overthrow of those whose power depends on it. In other words, death was the last tyrant that Jesus came to defeat. Sin, yes. Sickness, yes. Cosmic chaos, yes. Satan and his dominion over earth and creation, yes. And once and for all, death. Now that that's done with, church, go to work. So what we see through the synoptic gospels is this view of Jesus's ministry with the lens of warfare. Mark chapter three, verse 14. Just stay with me for a little bit and then we'll land. I'm gonna go fast for a reason. He appointed 12 that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. So Mark's gospel summarizes the ministry of Jesus with two things, preaching and driving out demons. So read the gospel of Mark and look at how this is the shortest gospel. It's the first gospel written by John Mark under the supervision of the apostle Peter. And he writes this as a theology of what happens so that you can be a disciple of Jesus. And he has more references to the personified Satan and demons than any other book. It's a short book, 16 chapters, over 13 personal references of, of Satan himself for casting out demons. That It's a theme. And this is why one commentator says Jesus is binding the strong man. So one commentator says to remove the thread of the exorcism ministries of Jesus and the disciples would be to destroy the fabric of Mark's account. Remember, we talk about discipleship and formation at this church. What does it mean to be a disciple? To be with Jesus, to become like Jesus, and to do the things that Jesus did. And I think for many of us, we've missed this one. We've missed the fact that this is a massive theme. Now that's Mark's gospel. I share with you John's gospel. What about Matthew and Luke? Well, let's look at Matthew and Luke. You guys good with that? Matthew um, says this. It says, Jesus, verse 23 of chapter four, it's a summary statement. Again, so I'm pulling out summary statements. If you were to read the gospel of Matthew, there are these occasional summary statements that Matthew puts in there to summarize the work of Jesus. Matthew 4, 23, right before the Sermon on the Mount, he says, Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness among the people. So Matthew's gospel is a summary of of teaching, of proclaiming the kingdom and healing diseases and sicknesses. Matthew will summarize the healing ministry as also deliverance ministry. The gospel of Luke chapter four, verse 18 says, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. These texts are summary verses of the ministry of Jesus. Mark, preaching, driving out demons. Matthew, preaching the kingdom, healing the sick. Um, Luke's gospel will be preaching, healing, and deliverance. In all of the gospels, there's a massive account for deliverance ministry of Jesus. 
That they're, the role Jesus came is not just to heal you of diseases, not just to heal you of sin and take away your sin, but to set you free from the evil one. Deliverance is the action of being saved or set free. So when we call on Jesus to save us, it's not just to save us from sin or to save us from hell. It's to save us from the activity that's around us. The Gospels tell the story of a Savior. So deliverance ministry is about being set free. Can I tell you a couple of stories, then we'll come back to the theology. I thought I'd lighten it up for a second. I've had lots of encounters with demonic here at this church, in churches all over the world, on the street. Um, in 2011, I was at a conference called New Wine. It was this massive conference, a whole bunch of Christians, thousands and thousands of Christians. And I got done preaching one night, and I was preaching on the kingdom of God. And you began during ministry time to hear shrieks, yelling, and a big commotion. And I, I was praying for people. So I walked to the back, and there were a bunch of volunteers trying to hold down what looked to be like a, a teenage girl, like a little girl, 16 maybe, thin and thin lady who was pushing people off of her. Like she had more power. She was six people trying to hold her down and she is just cussing up a storm, manifesting. It's like a movie, so dramatic. As soon as I got close by, she started cussing me out, effing preacher and starting to name all my sins. Knew my family, knew my wife's name. She just started going off. And it, there was this chaotic moment and it was full of confusion. And I was the one that just preached. So I had to pretend like I knew what to do. Because um, <laughs> at that point, I hadn't seen a lot of it. And so I just walked up and, and the girl was trying to tell the person praying for her how to pray, making a mockery of the ministry of Jesus. And I read in a book, oh, you can silence the enemy. And so I just said, this is the daughter of a king be quiet. And she went stiff as a board. Yeah. Like, oh, okay. Um, <laughs> and I said, We're, in the name of Jesus, leave this da daughter of the king and immediately left. Wow. Came right to her senses. I was in India. I'm going to start with the dramatic. Um, I was in India with, with a bunch of our team, Alan, Anessa, Zach, our elders, there's a bunch of us. I think um, Jim, Eaton is Jim here. Jim was there. And we were, we were praying for this girl who was slithering, right? She was slithering, right? As we were praying, I walk up, same thing. Our team's praying. This girl's like friend is praying. And they don't, they, they, we have translators. They don't speak English. And, and I just said, uh, same thing. Like I said this, I said, in the name of Jesus, come out of her. And she goes flat. And then the girl she, who was praying for her begins to slither in the same spirit. Now, the odd thing is they didn't speak our language. So they didn't know what I was saying, but the demons do. And I was like, oh, right. We don't send spirits away. We send them to Jesus. This is something that we'll teach you later on in our training on deliverance. So I said to the other girl, in the name of Jesus, come out of here and go straight to Jesus. And she went flat and went straight to Jesus. That's, and how many of you are, can I get testimony for those that were there? Zach was there. Yeah, John was there. Oh, yeah, John, you were there. Yeah, you were there, Susie. So these are, these are stories. Now I just have four eyewitnesses to this event. I can tell you so many other stories. I could tell you about, I was at Rock Harbor preaching a couple months ago. I was doing ministry time, which they don't do ministry time very often there. And there was this woman who was getting prayer at the end and everyone, it was the nine o'clock service and they don't let me preach very long at all. They let me preach for 25 minutes. So it was a warm up. Um, I'm going to preach at a conference in Long Beach called Exponential in a couple of weeks. And I'm one of the, the, the mainline guys, main speakers, and it's 18 minutes. I was like, you want my, like the intro, like where we conversate? No, the whole, I'm like, well, I'm going to pray for people. Do I have time? No, you have 18 minutes. So prayer has to be in like, Okay, sounds good. I'll be there praying. I'm going to preach for nine and then pray for nine. So there we go. Um, we're, I go up to this lady and this team is praying for, she's clearly upset and no one really knows why. And as we're praying for her, I have this deep sense that there's something that the enemies used from her past that has kept her in bondage. And it's so sensitive. So there's a group of people, and so I whisper this word, which I'm not going to say out loud, but it's, it's devastating. She's probably 48, if I had to guess. Yeah. She is 48. I don't, I'm not guessing. I asked her her age later on. Uh, <laughs> like, wow. 
prophetic imagination. Whew. Chris Vallant, no. Um. And I say this word, and she stops, and she cannot believe what I just shared. And she begins to like weep. She begins to weep hysterically with like a guttural, a gut yelling, grieving sound. It turns from like something's going on to this pain is so severe, it's held you captive. Now that was a word of knowledge, but that, that experience is not just inner healing. It, it is that, it's also deliverance. Something has held her captive from when she was a young 16-year-old girl that as a 48-year-old, she is not free of. It's my time up, Daisy. Should I, should I move on? Are, am I practicing 18 minutes right now? It's, I'm over. These stories are how it works. There are subtle ways. In fact, this last week, I prayed for somebody. I'm not gonna tell you the details, but they wanted healing for something. And as I prayed for healing, the la- I stopped and I'm like, you know, how are you doing? And she's like, okay. And she's like, I just feel like I'll always have this with me. And I'm like, oh, that's an agreement. Because the truth, that's a lie. Even if you die with that thing, eventually you're going to meet Jesus. That's going to be gone, right? right? Am I right? So I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not saying like, oh, you have to have a false belief or name it and claim it. I'm like, no, this is an agreement, a, a belief system the enemy has used to hold you captive to this condition. So if you believe a lie and you allow the enemy to build a cathedral, a forest of lies in your life around that, it's going to be hard to be operating outside of that lie. So you have to replace the lie with the true truth. So what I had her do was renounce the lie. In the early church, you didn't just accept Jesus. You renounced the world. You don't just come and say, okay, I believe. I want to be personally saved. Great. You deny the world's ways. You deny the kingdom of darkness. You renounce lies. You renounce sin. You renounce the things that you participated in. And that's not, you know, PC in the church today. We're so sensitive to these things. But John says the reason Jesus came was to destroy the works of the devil. And some of us are here and we don't have faith. It's not just because we lack faith, but we're being tormented because of unforgiveness. Can I speak for a moment on this? I think there are people in this room that have lost their faith because of unforgiveness. You're held captive because somebody hurt you so bad. Some church, some person, some ex-spouse, some ex-girlfriend, some pastor, some person hurt you. And you protected yourself with anger. You protected your heart with bitterness. You collected a fortress that became a fortified brick wall around your heart. And it led to this unforgiveness that when you have unforgiveness, you give permission according to the the parables in the New Testament that Jesus teaches for the tormentors to come in. And so now you're like coming to these environments where you're like, oh, I just don't believe, I don't believe. The reason you don't believe is because you're being impacted by a heart that the enemy's playing like a fiddle. You see, this is what I'm talking about. We don't just need to convince people to believe, we need to set them free and tell them it's Jesus, not a tarot card. It's Jesus, not yoga. It's Jesus, not your fast or your diet. It's Jesus, not working out. It's Jesus, our rescuer, who does that today. And we, as the church, stand in the gap for a dying and brutalized, hurting world and set people free. This is what we're called into. This is part of our every. We should be walking into places, interceding, for the lives of our coworkers, for the industries we're in, music industry, graphic design industry, Netflix, uh, the entertainment industry, the school systems we're a part of, our doctor's practice, wherever you find yourselves, our homes, the education, all of it are places that are contested by the enemy. Every place on earth. Our job as Christians is to partner with Jesus to see things set free. Are you guys okay with this? There's a bunch of, here's a list of specific stories in the gospels that you can read that are specific stories of, will you put that slide up for me? The seven um, specific stories. Thanks, Seth. No worries. I'll wait for you. 
you always wait for me, so I can give you this one. You only wanted uh, five, and you got 10, right? Is that right? Is that right? You only wanted one, and you got five? What is it? Yeah, is that it? I was thinking, like, it must be because God answers your prayer. I was thinking about Michael Petrilla. He wanted, like, 20 and got five. So Michael's not in here to defend himself, but uh, I'm just kidding. Oh, there you are. Sorry, I'm just kidding, Michael. (laughs) I'm just kidding. Your prayer is not based on performance. I know some of you believe that lie. Oh, that got, that's a good one. Some of you don't think your prayers are being answered because you're not doing it right. You're not doing enough. Or you have to prove yourself worthy. You sinned last week. That's a lie. Man, you are loved by God. You are his child. Man, when my kids come up and say it's hungry, they will hear a no if it's not time, right? So it's not, if I just fed them, I'm going to say no. But 90% of the time, here's a snack. If I'm hungry and my wife's around, I pull her purse out so I can get some snacks. (laughs) What am I saying? As children of God, you feast in his presence. You don't come, oh, maybe could you? You come expectant with a faith that is so ferocious, it terrifies the people around you because that is the prayer that will change things. Move mountains, part seas, say to this area, let's get some water in SoCal. Can you say amen to that? We got to talk to the leaders. Amen to that as well. Let's plan for that. So Jesus, I'm going to skip this. The point I want to say is when Jesus, if you see the themes of uh, of this text, you will... All throughout the Gospels, there is this confrontation of power encounters, the kingdom of God versus the kingdom of darkness. Jesus comes announcing the good news. Let me say this. Good news is not just about good teaching. It confronts evil. And I want to give you some summary ideas. Evil is something we cannot overcome by simple human goodwill and teaching. Even evil at its root is demonic, and it's too great for us to overcome. We go to that slide. It's later on. I'm skipping a bunch of slides. But it's about uh, it, it confronts evil. Do you have that, Seth? After Matthew 8. Yeah, so evil at its root, it's demonic and it's too great for us to overcome. Why do I have to say this? Because there's evil. You have an enemy and the world wants you to think it's just this utopian society and occasionally there's some scary stuff around Halloween. But no, (laughs) stuff going on in our culture, in government, in systems are corrupted by evil. We talked about this last week. We're going to keep talking about it. The second thing, it's, it is for this purpose that Jesus came to overcome evil. Number three, evil cannot be overcome just through good teaching or ethical values, but by the power of God, which is given to us by the Holy Spirit. We can't overcome good or evil with good. We need the presence of God in us to produce the power encounter. We can't, we can't just show up and expect that our morality will transform evil systems. Yes, we can be a redemptive presence, but the real power that's going to be overcome will come through the power of God. Are you guys good? I'm trying to feel it out. I, don't really, I feel like there's more blank stairs than normal. It's either my teaching or it's really profound. And this is how I think. It's either my bad teaching or it's so profound. You're like, wow, Darren, I cannot believe the slides. The slides in themselves are delivering me So through prayer for healing and prayer for deliverance, we become channels of Jesus to heal and to to free people, as well as institutions and societies, from evil that weighs them down. How many of you have walked into a space and felt something's up? The vibe's off. Yeah, so I want you to understand that when we think about this idea of deliverance, we're talking about becoming the kinds of people that can operate in the power of the Holy Spirit in ordinary ways, where we change the vibe when we walk in. We don't start by going, like, oh, angel over here. That's not how we do it. That was pretty good. That was my mime days. (laughs) Because I had, what did I just say, babe? Did I just say I I had mime season? Like, 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 oh, I have a past. Like, I had a mime day. Like, no, I was never a mime. (laughs) I was just laying down, pulling down strongholds in the name of Jesus. Oh, I'm having fun today. 
being a disciple of Jesus is an act of war against all the powers and authorities and spiritual realities that oppose God's way of life. So Jesus invites you into battle, into warfare. You being a disciple is not giving you your best life. It's you dying to self being freed from the world and the ways of the world and the kingdom of darkness to be set free in the kingdom of God, therefore challenging the kingdom of darkness everywhere you, everywhere you go. So the question is, if you have no opposition, are you a disciple of Jesus? Wow, interesting. If life is cozy and you don't regularly need intercession for the risk you are about to participate in, are you living this great, beautiful world out as a disciple of Jesus? May I propose to you that you are made for battle, that discipleship is an act of war. And I'm not talking about voting your guy into office. I'm talking about the thing behind the guys in office. And are you ready for that? If not, just know that demons push people into things like fear and anger and bitterness and rejection and self-hatred and unforgiveness and lust and shame and guilt and perversions and compulsions of all different kind or whatever else which a person is prone to. When people obey them by submitting to temptation, demons try to get them to blame themselves as if they made the mistake all by themselves. More on this in a couple of weeks. With that, can we pray? Thank you for listening. For more information, please visit garden.church. Thank you.